This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. I talked with Carolyn Surick and Ron McFarlane recently. You might recall they both had their own careers. Carolyn founded Ensemble Galilee back in 1990. Ron has been with the Baltimore Consort and the folk trio Earhart, which he founded several years ago. They never really had a chance to make music together until the global pandemic. They lived about 25 minutes apart and found, wow, it's so easy, just get in the car, come on over. We'll just make some music together. Well, three years later, they've just put out their third recording together. It's called And So Flows the River. And that's what we hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, welcome, Ron and Carolyn. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you again about, I believe this is your third collaboration together. Is that right? Yes, it It is. is. Because I know that um, you've now decided this is going to become a thing for the two of you to kind of keep collaborating since COVID. So I, for one, am quite grateful and really am enjoying this new recording. Carolyn, When you and I were just talking a little bit, you were talking about the poetry that goes with this recording. Should we start with that? Well, it it was an interesting project to sort of express to the world what we were bringing to this. Because people ask us all the time, you know, like, what are you doing? You have such a wide range of repertoire. Like, how are you making these choices? And so sometimes I think it's important to express, you know, in this particular case, this CD is really music that we love very much. And it's music that's very personal to us. And Ron and I have a a similar background in that we are both from the same sort of geographic region of this country. And so I wanted to express with this poem, this idea that uh, the music that we're doing is music that's really a part of us. It's like music that's inside of us the way that the deciduous forest is inside of us because this is where we're from. And so it was really fun. I love, I love writing with a purpose sometimes, and this was a beautiful way to express in words what we were trying to do with music. Tell me about the title of this recording, And So Flows the River. Why was it just so perfect for what we're hearing on this recording? Well, again, we sort of, both of us from this region were, this is music of our lives. We're both over 60. We've had a lot of time to love music, to incorporate music into our lives, to have music be sort of central to our being. And much like the way that the river flows, our lives flow through this, you know, this construct, which is the time. And so I wanted to to bring that idea of our lives are flowing along. We're accumulating music. We're accumulating things that we love along the way and bringing them to this project. Ron, do you have anything to add on that? I think 
in terms of, of flowing, the, the repertory itself was a real flow state for each of us, bringing music that each of us loved, uh, regardless of the repertory, regardless of the genre that it came from. So I think we kind of get into a flow state when we're deciding what to play, bringing up pieces from any any memory, any part of our lives, anything we might have heard of, or maybe maybe we're just discovering something for the first time. Otherwise, I don't think we could possibly have had such a broad range of pieces brought together, hopefully that still has some cohesion. It's interesting. Everything you just said made me think about how people come to classical music, right? So it's not everybody is an expert in classical music. And so when we invite them in, you know, we want them to recognize some things. We want them to discover some things. So thank you for kind of creating that easy entry into classical music with this recording. (laughs) I know that when you started to look at everything you had compiled, all of a sudden you had this, oh, wait a minute moment. We have to figure out how we're going to get this all together on this recording. How are we going to, you know, collectively put these genres together? Can you talk a little bit more about how that that flow was created? Well, after we put the music together, Carolyn made a list. It was a list of three, I guess three genres or three basic categories. And I can't remember what all three of them are at the moment. And we took a look at it and they were amazingly... Uh, equal to one another in in number. Carolyn, do you remember the names of your categories? Well, one was early music, and one was songs, and one was traditional music, I think. And then there was a challenge because some of them fit into more than one category, right? How do, how did you decide? <laughs> yes, which category did the did the Eric Satijanopides go right. into? And which category did the Dowland go into? Because it's a song, and I mean, blow my tears. And it's early music. And, and it's early music. It's yeah, yeah. bit more about Satie's Gymnopodies because it seemed when I just looked at them there, it's like, oh, that's interesting that they chose to put those there in the mix of what's here. Um, Was it about the mood or what is your relationship with those pieces? we both remember hearing them for the first time in the 70s and thinking you know this this music is so special I mean it's so simple and so beautiful and so it has so much in it so when we were casting about for what to uh, put on this new recording and I said you know what about this should not be and it, and it was kind of like well why not we can do this <laughs> like we we can do this and then the process of bringing those pieces to life on this instrument, because you know they're written for piano, and the piano, it, it's you know it's one palette, and so to give the pieces the kind of grace and timelessness, meaning like actually not timelessness as of as in terms of 20th, 19th, or 18th century, but timelessness as in time stops running. The clock is not running when the gymnopodies are being played. There's something about those pieces that really sort of takes you out of the moment that you're in and puts you in a different place. 
And so it was just so much fun to try to create that feeling that you feel when you hear it played on a piano, but to do it in our own special way. It was really fascinating. And somebody actually said to you, Carolyn, that they should always be played the way you guys played them. How does that make you feel? <laughs> so validated. <laughs> so very validated. And my first experience of them was, was also in the 1970s, but I didn't hear it on the piano first. I heard it live in a guitar recital um, in Maryland, a guitar recital of Christopher Parkening, who made some excellent arrangements of them. But I was so captivated hearing the, the first gymnopathy for the first time that um, I really fell in love with it. talking about hearing that, like in the early 70s, Ron, made me think about the relationship that both you and Carolyn discovered you had with Bach's Sinfonia. Yes, I, I first heard it. Um, I, I went to a record store that's back when they had records around 1968 or 69. In, in the same the same trip to the, to a record store, I got the first Led Zeppelin album and the Walter Carlos, now Wendy Carlos, switched on Bach. So I first heard this uh, on a synthesizer with all its boops and beeps and whistles. So I think my idea of how it ought to sound was permanently skewed by, um, by hearing it that way, but instantly fell in love with it. It's a very energetic arrangement. It just, it sounds terrific, whether you're a, a synthesizer buff or not. And it just sounded so fresh and great. And now you have added your own fresh arrangement, which, Carolyn, I believe you described this arrangement and this performance of it on your recording as a revelation. Tell me more about that. Why do you use that to describe it? Well, you know, Ron has this capacity to, to make arrangements that sort of, we sit down to play them, and they're just two of us in the room. I mean, literally, they're just, when we're working out the music, sometimes we add a percussionist, which is really, really fun, but um, it's just the two of us. And so we sat down to play this, and it was so, there's so much happening. I mean, it's just like, you can't sort of imagine that these two instruments could be doing all of this at the same time. I, I'm not doing that much. Ron is doing the heavy lifting on this by far, but but still, it, it's just something you could never imagine taking an orchestral piece and creating an arrangement for two people that could be so compelling and uh, exciting, I think, is for me. It's just really exciting. a percussionist on this recording, um, introduced the percussionist to us. And I know there's a really interesting story about how you went to meet him, and it's very colorful. You got to stop and have breakfast and <laughs> wanted to make sure he was the right guy and, you know, had to pick out among his numerous percussion instruments how to really add the right texture to your pieces. Please share that with us. 
Well, um, we were looking for someone very special for this project, and I have a friend who was uh, toured with Ensemble Gallet and recorded with us many years ago. She happens to be the percussionist for Phantom of the Opera. She was there on the first night and the last night. She was there the whole time. But anyway, um, she's a wonderful percussionist and also had done work with Glenn Velez in New York, who's just this fabulous, fabulous uh, hand drummer. And so she said, well, I can't do it, but let me get you in, in touch with Yusef Sharonik. He's fabulous. You'll love him. And so I call him up out of the blue. And he's like, yeah, cool. I'm free. And he was actually free, which for all musicians know that if you can find somebody who's free on your rehearsal date and your recording date, that you've just won the lottery. So then we go to New York to meet with him. And we wanted to go to New York so that we could be in his space. Because if you know percussionists, you know that they have so many instruments to choose from. So we are, and we do, we have a great adventure. We end up eating at this wonderful place and that's in the town that's nearby. And then there's a car show and it's really fun. And then we get to his house and, and he has, you know, an entire wall of instruments. And so we start pulling out the pieces that we want to play with him. We would like him to play with us. And he's trying out all the different instruments so that we can like, we can choose exactly the timbre for any given piece that we want. It was so exciting. And he's just masterful. Give me an example of where he is on this recording that you feel really is a masterful touch that you want to make sure we don't miss. Uh, let's see. Um, this is Judge's Jig, where he's playing a Rick. Is a great one. The very first piece, W. Lee's Reel, where, where Yusuf is playing uh, motion drum. Is another one. Those are two that, that really stand out to me. Let's talk a little bit more about W. Lee's Reel, because that's a tribute to your dad, Ron. Tell me more about that piece. It is. Um, this piece has kind of a Scotch-Irish flavor to it, which reflects my dad's background, and of course my background as well. Uh, he grew up in uh, rural West Virginia, and I think he heard the kind of Scotch-Irish traditional music in the hills quite a bit. and. Um, I think it's a it's a sort of inv- adventurous piece because it has in the lute part something that sounds like a propulsive fiddle tune in the sort of Scotch-Irish tradition. And yet, that's not the lead voice. You would think so from the beginning of it. But as it goes along, Gamba comes in and the gamba actually has the melody. It's a slower moving part that soars over, or I should say under, because it's a lower range than the lute. Um, I don't know what the opposite of soar is, but anyway, it goes along uh, in these long, long notes under much faster moving propulsive accompaniment.
somehow it seemed to hit the personality of my dad. I think of the word simmering as the opposite of sore. <laughs> simmering, nice. Nice one. <laughs> Over the Rainbow is a song that really does hit home for you, Carolyn. Will you tell me more about the story behind that? Well, sure. Um, I mean, we all have a relationship with Over the Rainbow, but uh, my dad was in the last weeks of his life, and, uh, and I was at his hospital room with my brother. My brother would be there all day, just be there all day. and. So I would take my instrument in. I had a young child at the time, so I would get there when I could get there, and I would take my instrument in and I would play. And I was uh, playing one day, and my brother said, can you play Over the Rainbow? And I was like, I guess so. been a piece that's been very important to me and that um, I have used to celebrate the lives of the departed. And, uh, and I think that in this particular case, again, Ron did this beautiful, beautiful arrangement and it's profound. such a perfect piece to play for someone who's transitioning to the next world. Thank you for that. There is a fun medley in the middle of this recording, and it starts with a familiar melody. Is that melody called Beach Spring? Yes. Because I hear the melody, and I'm like, I know this, but I don't know it by that title. Tell me more about this medley and how it all comes together. Well, I have to tell you, I was working in a church for eight and a half years, and we had this brilliant music director. And he came to practice every day, Monday through Friday. He was always there. And so I would be in my office, and he would be in the sanctuary at the organ. And if there was a piece that caught my ear, I'd, I'd be like walking in. I'm like, okay, what's that one? And that was how we came to Beach Spring. in your typical style. Um, I know that you often show up for your Saturday rehearsals together with something in your backpack that might be new without even a title, right? Can you give us an example of Oftentimes. something that you pulled out of your backpack that appears on this recording? 
Yes, the one called Where Mountains Meet the Sky. Uh, that's one that I wrote. And um, I just, I sort of had the idea of it being a very expansive piece. I imagined driving, like driving into the West. Somehow felt like a Western piece. But I didn't have a name for it. It just, I, I wrote it, I think, over, um, over the Christmas break, Christmas um, before last, and brought it into one of our rehearsals, played it, and told Carolyn that I, you know, while I had the, the music worked out pretty, it was pretty much done, I didn't have a name for it. And um, Carolyn said, Cora. I think Cora. And I immediately went, well, who's Cora? And she said, no, no, Cora is not a person. It's a place in Wyoming. She showed me these photos, which looked absolutely perfect for peace. I went home thinking, okay, Cora. Cora must be the name of this piece. And I looked it up and even found that it was the alternate name for the Greek goddess Persephone, goddess of the spring or, grow, or things that grow on the earth. But by the next couple of rehearsals, we were thinking, well, everyone else is likely to, to mistake the name Cora, just as I did at first. It may be something that actually describes what it's about, where mountains meet the sky, that place on the borderline of the horizon. Um, really does describe the feeling of the piece to us. I was just having this um, thought because when we started this conversation, you were talking about how you live in, you know, kind of a forested area, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of trees, and this is kind of the opposite of that. It is. And it makes me wonder, like, if you are writing music in that type of an environment, what made you think of this open, spacious area? Well, I love long drives, and I've, I've been all around the country touring. So I have memories of of the West, I have uh, particularly Pacific Northwest where I lived for, for more than a decade. And I just love the, the feeling. There, there's a character to the land as well as the people in each area of the country. And I've, I've really fallen in love with each area which has its own personality, its own character, um, quite distinct from, from every other part. And I just love the feeling of this open, open sky. I've, I've written other pieces, uh, solo boot pieces that have been released years and years ago. Um, one uh, from a Baltimore consort tour when we were driving through um, through Wyoming, Montana. We were, we were driving on one of these long, long straightaway stretches of road. And this was in the 1990s. At that time, there was no speed limit on the road. It just said, speed limit prudent and reasonable, nighttime 80. So 
the fastest driver in the group, the one with the most speeding tickets, got behind the wheel. I was relegated to the back seat. And as we're speeding along, going, what, 105, 110, 115, my tall palms are get, kind of getting cold and sweaty because I'm a little nervous going that fast, even though it's straight away as far as you can see over the horizon. And as we looked at the, at the mountains, we're going through this enormous valley, through the Rocky Mountains, and looking at the mountains, big as they were, we seemed to be gradually, just barely moving at all, like a glacial pace, because they were so huge. And that moment, um, I began imagining a melody. It just sort of spontaneous, spontaneously came from that moment. And so similarly, with these pieces, with, with a lot of music, um, it, it comes from a particular moment, a particular experience that I've had that just brings music out. Uh, probably the natural world more than anything else for myself. Carolyn, Leanne's Ocean is a piece that holds a lot of special memories for you. Will you share that story, please? It really does. Um, when my daughter was young, we would go to the beach in Delaware. And we had a friend who had a, a condo. And uh, it was I think she was four or five years old. And we would go to the beach. And being at the beach with a kid, is, it's just the best. Um, but then I would go back to the condo, and then I would write music um, for the, the upcoming show. And it was just such a sense of having, you know, we don't have forever. I mean, one of the things that having kids really hammers home is that they're only that age for a second, and then they're going to be somebody else. And and the same is true with other relationships. You know, you have people in your life, and they're so pro, so profoundly in your life, and then things change. And so this tune, this arrangement, Leanne's Ocean, is really about those things that you treasure so deeply, knowing that they won't last. We've talked about a number of pieces that have primarily positive memories for you. There is one that has mixed emotions in it called On Greenmount Avenue that reflects both beauty and despair. And helplessness and rage. Tell me how this piece evolved and also how a 16th century French tune became part of that story. Well, I, I was working at this church in Baltimore and uh, on the way to work, I had a choice between going straight up to the sort of on the freeway and then getting off and going through these nice neighborhoods or going through town, which was a more direct route. And I would get off and turn onto Biddle Street. And when you turn onto Biddle Street to the left, you see just the boarded up vacant houses. And there's graffiti on them and the roofs are caved in and, and um, it's there's such a sense of, of destruction there and then you turn from Biddle onto Greenmount Avenue and I drive up Greenmount Avenue every day and this would be at 7 25 or 35 in the morning and there's an empty lot 
before 25th Street and there's an open air drug market there and there are guys coming to sell drugs and there are people scoring drugs and it's, you know, 7.30 in the morning and it's, it's this mind-bogglingly difficult situation because Baltimore is a very, very, very tough town to live in. And it's, and so then you go a few more blocks and you see Mimi's drug, Mimi's liquor store and there are, you know, four or five guys sitting out in front of the liquor store at 7.30 in the morning drinking from the bottles that are inside the paper bags. And, and so every day I got to drive through a place where life is really, really hard. At the same time, you would see these kids waiting for the bus and they're like pushing and shoving and they're being kids and they're laughing. And there is this group of church ladies perfectly dressed who walk down the street every day carrying a Bible. There are three of them. They look like they're sort of the youngest one might be in her 60s. The oldest one might be close to 80. And they're talking. They're just walking down the street and then they turn. And one, one morning, um, they're standing at the corner waiting for the light to turn. And, uh, and the youngest one has her head thrown back and she is just laughing. And the other two women who are smiling and I'm like, you know, here we have this moment where you see the most beautiful parts of life and the most terrible parts of life side by side. And, and sometimes you, in your life, you run across situations where you just want to shake your fist at God and say like, what, like, what are you thinking? Why do people have to suffer like this? And sometimes they think it's important to articulate that music. You know, we can do beautiful all day long. We could sit there and do beautiful music all day long. But every once in a while, I think it's important to say, you know what, life is really hard. It's like really hard. And so that's what I tried to do in Greenmount Avenue. And, and so I, I used the piece of music, Bella Kichiamabi. A French pavane as the sort of structure. And I used it because that piece of music came from a, a terrible time in my life. And so it, it's directly connected to things that are hard. And the question is, can you take that hard? Can you take that terrible and make beauty out of it? Like, can you take the very worst things that have happened and can you make something that also has beauty in it and also expresses the sort of greater tragedy that life can be? This recording is filled with the sum of your experiences, and each piece was intentionally handpicked. And I'm wondering now, as you reflect on this project and what you chose to include in this recording, is there a piece that you selected that maybe was kind of unexpected that you're like, oh, here's something we should include? Or now that you look back, you're kind of like, oh, I'm kind of surprised I chose that one. 
And if so, what is it? <laughs> well, I'm a little surprised that we chose the gymnopodies in the first place. Um, they're pieces that that have been played so many times, and there, there's a reluctance, at least there is a reluctance on my part, to present them again, just because they've been heard so many times. But then I remembered my first, the first time I, I heard them, it was just so enchanting. And I thought, if we can, if we can bring a freshness to it, if we can bring a perspective, a way of hearing this music that has never been, like it's never been done this way before, that it's, it's quite valid. I think we've done that. But that's that's a surprise, one that I wouldn't have expected to turn up on this program. So I've got to credit Carolyn for for suggesting it and um, kind of poking at me to to consider it seriously. Took me took me a little while. And for me, I feel the same way about Shenandoah. Uh-huh. There was like no way that I was going to go there. I mean, absolutely. When Ron brought it. And I was like, okay. Also, because I have in my head the memories of some of my favorite singers singing The Water is Wide. Right? And and Shenandoah, and it's like, how can we possibly own this? How can we kind of step into it and wear it and do it in such a way that it it won't be like it's ever been before? I mean, if you're going to take those pieces, you better, like, you better bring it. Like, you better have something to say that that is really meaningful or else it is not meaningful. And so, um, so that was, for me, it was Shenandoah and Water is Wide. So just on an arranging front, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, showed me how it was possible, uh, if you're playing Shenandoah, if you wait until about halfway through the fourth measure and then start playing the waters wide, they harmonize with one another. So. That's the sort of arranging tour de force that ends Shenandoah the last time through. You're actually hearing both melodies at the same time. I, I can't take credit for it. I, I, um, it didn't even occur to me, but when I, when I heard my friend play one on the hammer dulcimer and then sing the other two at the same time, it sort of blew my mind. And I, I asked him if we, could, if we could borrow that. Could we borrow that permanently? And he said, yes. This, this project is about who we are and where we're from. And not just geographically, but sort of in our hearts. And so I thought that closing with Water is Wide and Shenandoah was the perfect way to say, here we are. Thank you.
and so flows the river. It's a new recording featuring Carolyn Surick and Ron McFarlane. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.